We are live at the International Leadership Association with Ron Riggio, and today we're going to talk about his longitudinal research. Tell us what the research was. In 1979, a longitudinal study was launched by a bunch of developmental psychologists in Fullerton, California. So this is called the Fullerton Longitudinal Study. The participants were 131-year-old children and their parents. The developmental psychologists were interested in all kinds of aspects of early child development, and they followed them and measured them every six months with lots and lots of psychological measures, intelligence measures, and motivational measures. They did observational ratings. They had the parents, both parents, father and mother, fill out all kinds of questionnaires and instruments about their children, about their parenting practices, etc. At four years of age, they measured them annually, and at 17 years of age, they were essentially going to say goodbye to them, thank you. So that led to about 20-some data collections over those 17 years or 16 years. And then when they were 29, we went in, and with their cooperation, we did leadership assessments at age 29 as they were relatively young adults. And then two years ago, 2016, uh, when they were 38 years of age. So what we're really looking at is we have all of this archival data on them from essentially birth through their adolescent years. And then we measured leadership and things like their ideas about leadership, what's their leader identity, what's their motivation to take on leadership positions. And of course, we looked at all of their leadership activities and leadership positions that they currently held. So what this allows us to do is trace back to the earliest roots of leadership. So just to give you one example, one of the well-known findings in leadership research is that extroverts are more likely to emerge as leaders, to get into leadership positions. And it's a pretty robust finding. Well, we looked at that and we found, yes, indeed, because at 17 years of age, the kids took a personality inventory and we found that extroversion did relate. It distinguished leaders from non-leaders and it correlated with assessments, how effective they were as leaders and their leadership activities, even if they weren't in leadership positions. So one of the things that we looked at is we call it everyday leadership. When do people take on a leadership role, even though they may not have a formal title or job? Mm -hmm. So that'd be something like volunteering in the community or being, being an officer in a club or a okay. civic organization, okay. right? So we did find that extroversion was a significant predictor of later leadership as adults. But one of the things that we measured, we also measured their social and interpersonal skills. And what we found was extroverts did not have an advantage if they didn't have the interpersonal skills. So in other words, talking in sort of statistical terms, the relationship between extroversion and leadership was completely mediated by interpersonal skills. So what that tells us is that yes, introverts can be leaders, but they have to possess the interpersonal skills. And conversely, extroverts have a slight advantage because they tend to be a little more interpersonally skilled than introverts. But if an extrovert lacks those interpersonal skills, those social skills, they have no advantage whatsoever in attaining a leadership position or being an effective leader. And extroverts will gravitate toward those positions, but they will probably still be less successful if they don't have interpersonal skills. That's right. It's, okay. it's the interpersonal skills that really is driving what's going on. In other words, we sort of completed the picture. The interesting thing about that study was we were able to trace back extroversion 
all the way to their toddler years, one and a half years of age. At one and a half years, and then subsequently when they were mm -hmm. children, they measured what's called approach behavior. And approach behavior is the temperamental precursor of extroversion. So kids who are high on approach behavior will approach in novel situations. You think about this, what developmental psychologists have to do to measure children's behavior, or children's mm -hmm. personalities, is you have to bring them into the lab and have them do things, play activities. So one of the approach behaviors was they put in a novel and interesting looking toy into the room and they just code whether the child, the toddler approaches the toy or shies away from it. And that will then eventually, that approach behavior will over the years sort of manifest itself as extroversion. So what we're able to do is bring it back and look at the very, very early roots of leadership. So one of the things I ask people is I say, okay, think of yourself as a leader today. How did you get to be there? How did you get the leadership skills and potential developed? And what we're actually doing is looking back in time because we have all that data. That's fascinating. It's an amazing study. They did so much data collection, these, this team of developmental psychologists, that we estimate that they have 18,000 variables in the study. 18,000? Yeah. What are some of the variables? Well, we have all of the personality variables. We have a lot of parenting variables. So we know everything about the quality of the parenting uh, that the children received. We have, gosh, we have their entire academic records. We know everything that they did in school. One of the new studies that we're looking at is what's the effect of participation in sports. And so we know every sport that they played. We know how much time they spent playing that sport. We have ratings from the parents on how uh, good they were in relationship to their peers, why they were motivated to participate in sports. So we're looking at the relationship between sports because there's a big belief that participating in sports and particularly team sports mm -hmm. then is a precursor or is one of the things that helps you build your leadership capacity. Unfortunately, we're not finding what we call main effects. We're not finding that more sports equals more leadership as uh, an adult. But we're, some sports. We're, well, we're not that. We're finding that it's really complex. So in other words, one of the things that we just found was if the parents have a sort of supportive activity, athletic-oriented home, if the, the parents sort of encourage this as a sort of positive form, what that does is that the kids are more likely to participate in sports and it sort of builds their self-esteem mm. and this sort of sense of efficacy. Okay. And that, that then will relate to leadership. But it's not mm. a straightforward relationship where just playing sports, you're automatically going to become a leader. You need to have that supportive, nurturing family environment. You need to, um, and, and, it, and it's mediated through increased confidence and incre mm -hmm. and maybe some increased interpersonal skills. In fact, I think we look, we found that there was a relationship there too. So now we're in the process, we have to go back and recode this stuff because we're now in the process of looking at which sports matter, your question. Oh, uh, okay, so matter. track versus golf versus football. Right, team sports versus individual mm -hmm. sports. So that's mm -hmm. one of the ways we just coded the data. And, uh, you know, you would expect that team sports are going to build more interpersonal mm -hmm. skills. Individual sports, you just, you know, you're not going to be, you, know, you have to communicate with your team members. But when you're doing a, a sport alone, it may be that, um, and, and we have other measures. We have measures of grit and resilience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it may be that sports across the board, particularly individual mm -hmm. sports, might build grit and resilience. But we haven't investigated that yet. 
I did play some sports in high school, but one of the biggest impacts for me was doing an outward bound trip. Okay. Where I had to do novel things. We did some caving, but we turned our lights off and had to crawl on hands. And, and, and unfortunately, they told us this once we got in the cave, so we didn't yeah. have a choice of doing novel things. But it were the whole experience for me was stuff I was uncomfortable with, and it really forced me to... to push beyond boundaries and realize I could. Yeah. Well, a couple, a couple of my colleagues that I've worked with over the years, David Day is an expert in leader development, talks about tr leadership trajectories. And we think of leadership trajectories as sort of a steady upward sloping line, right? Mm -hmm. But in reality, individual leadership trajectories are not like that. There are parts where leadership sort of declines and, and, mm -hmm. and then there may be peaks and there may be valleys. But Bruce Avolio, who's also a noted leadership researcher, talks about these crucible moments. And what I think you were talking about with your camp experience was mm -hmm. really sort of a crucible moment for you where you learn something about yourself in dealing with very ambiguous and challenging situations. And we know that leaders can develop from those sort of crucible events. You know, when we talk about vertical development, so moving through the levels of meaning making, the crucible moments are something that is that we think is foundational to dislodge people from their comfort zone and traditional meaning making right. and move into a place where they have the opportunity to get support in moving to the next level. So back to the comment you made about support, yeah. dislodging them from their comfort zone and giving them no support, they are likely to devolve. Yeah. Well, and, and there's also lots of research that shows that people learn a lot from failures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it's kind of common sense. When you fail in a leadership position, you analyze what went wrong. You try to figure things out. When you succeed, you're less likely to reflect mm -hmm. on that. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that we learn from our mistakes. And in the same way, I think those challenges become these sort of crucible leader development moments mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they're so extraordinary. And so they stand out and we analyze it and we say, mm -hmm. well, what what did I do? What worked? What didn't work? Mm -hmm. How could I, how would I approach that situation in the future or similar situation? So that's kind of the realigning of meaning making or, or making sense differently than I did before. Exactly. exactly. So does this research tell me that based on what you're learning, if I had a child, which I don't, I could grow them up to turn them into a leader? Well, that's one of the things that we're, um, we're interested in. We're challenged by that because that's a huge undertaking. And we've actually been approached to write a book about that. So, okay. so there, are, there are agents who are saying, well, that would be a terrific topic, turn your kids into leaders. And, and we've talked about the potential of doing that. But I think we have to have a lot more research. We, have to know, we, we know a lot right now, but, mm -hmm. but I think we're a ways away from being able to do that. But some of this is, is not unusual and some of this is fairly common sense. You know, so for example, we know that the role of parents is very important in encouraging kids to be leaders. One of the variables that we've looked at is we actually asked the children when they were in their uh, adolescent years, um, how much did your parents encourage you to take on leadership positions, your peers, your teachers? Okay. And so we have all that. And that does seem to predict if they get that sort of support from parents, and from, from teachers and peers look to them mm -hmm, as leaders, mm -hmm. then they're more likely to take on leadership positions later in life. So even if they're introverts, if they're encouraged, they're yeah. likely 
the, the family life means a whole lot. It really, the, the role of parents is very, very important. What are some things parents can do to turn their children into leaders? Definitely provide that supportive, warm, supportive environment. Mm -hmm. One of the problems, though, that parents often do, we talk about helicopter parenting or tiger moms. And one of the things we know, in fact, we have a paper right now that, um, that we're hoping to get published that looked at over-parenting. We actually looked at Chinese kids, but there's a lot of parallels between U.S. and China. And we found that over-parenting actually had a negative effect on the leadership uh, emergence of, of children. And these are middle school children. And when we're talking about over-parenting, we're talking about that really over-parenting, helicopter parenting. Is In fact, the scale is called helicopter parenting. So what happens to those children is they lose a sense of efficacy. They lose that sort of self-confidence and self-esteem because their parents are doing everything for them. And so that actually works against their leadership uh, attainment. So you want to provide a supportive environment, but you don't want to do the, the tough things for your mm -hmm. child, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to intervene. You want to let your child have that ability to grow, to fail, to mm -hmm. learn on his or her own. So that's critically important. I think you want to encourage your child um, in a lot of ways to get out there, to um, you know, volunteer in the community, um, to take on roles in uh, extracurricular roles, you know, in clubs and organizations. Get them civically connected. I took my daughter to uh, uh, a session in court, you know, to to a courtroom to see how that operated, and it was an optional thing in her course. But mm -hmm. she said she learned so much from that. She was probably in sixth grade or fifth grade, and she said how you know she was just surprised how much it was different from TV court, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So I think any of those kind of activities and and just the parental encouragement. Yeah, so those are the things we know. And also anything you can do to develop your child's interpersonal skills because they're critically important. So can you give an example of what you do to develop interpersonal skills? Okay, well, so there's a model that I use that, that I developed years ago that looks at both emotional skills and mm -hmm. um, social skills. And they're obviously overlap and they're connected. And one of the ways you can think about it is emotional skills are sort of the foundational building blocks of emotional intelligence. Mm -hmm. And social skills, the social verbal skills are the building blocks of social intelligence. And one of the things you can um, do in that regard is one of the big things is to teach kids emotional regulation, how to regulate their emotions, mm -hmm. how to properly express their emotions. You don't want to have them stifle their emotional expressions, but you want to th have them learn how to express emotions appropriately and mm -hmm. in appropriate ways. Also, you know, you can work a little bit on the child's ability to read emotions in others and talk mm -hmm. about emotions. Mm -hmm. So all of that is going to build emotional skills. On the social side, some of it is about sort of etiquette, right? Is teaching children how to behave in different kinds of social situations. Oh, okay. And we're finding that that skill, what, what I call mm -hmm. sort of uh, social control or social sophisticated social role playing, is critical for leaders. Leaders have to play the role of being a leader. And if they don't get that, they're really not very good at it, it you know. So let me ask a tangential question, sure. and it's authenticity versus playing a role. I think we, we talk about authenticity, yeah. and yet so often I'm coaching my clients that you put on the costume when you go into work. Yeah. Not to be completely fake, but there are things you don't share. Yeah. 
It's such a, de a delicate and difficult balance. Mm -hmm. So you do have to engage in impression management. You do have okay, to. Okay, that's the word. Yeah, as a leader, you have to manage your impressions. I mean, mm -hmm. no one's going to, you know, uh, and, and we look at the emotional side. I mean, so you're in a crisis situation or the fire alarm rings. The leader has to get control of that situation. It's an emergency, and we got to get people out of the building. And if the leader starts screaming and running for the door, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, yeah so. use the example of ready to jump off the roof. Yeah. You don't want people to follow them. Yeah. So, you know, you do have to manage your impressions to a certain extent. Does that mean you're inauthentic? I don't think so. I think what we're talking about in terms of authenticity is treating people uh, fairly is mm -hmm. and letting them know, but letting them know in a controlled way. I mean, you know, to yell at somebody is not going to be effective, but to say, look, you know, I, I'm kind of disappointed because here's where you fell short mm -hmm. and giving that kind of feedback that still is saying, look, you know, you, you let me down. You didn't meet mm -hmm. my expectations, mm -hmm. but doing it in that kind of controlled way. So it's a, it's a really delicate balance, but I think the very best leaders learn how to do that. Thank you for saying that. Cause I'm working with someone now who actually a couple of women, very competent, very direct, very much trying to deliver big results that are going to change society. Mm -hmm. And both of them come across as not warm. Yeah. And so I'm saying yeah, it's a skill you can learn, and I hear it, but that's not authentically me. Yeah. But it's something that needs to be amped up a little bit, not, yeah. not run around and hug people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're not going to, you know, you're not, and that would be inauthentic to do that, right? Mm -hmm. To have somebody be somebody they're not. But to I think to work with them and say, how can you express that sort of warmth or mm -hmm. that concern, but do it in a way that, that is comfortable for mm -hmm. you. And a lot of times, that's why I distinguish the sort of emotional nonverbal from the verbal, because mm -hmm. sometimes it's sort of saying the right thing, so, and other times it's more the nonverbal mm -hmm. you know, kind of thing of, uh, you know, uh, touching somebody, you know, pat, mm -hmm. pat on the back, kind of that, those kind of things. You know, that, that can make a difference, but, but a lot of times you can just do it with your words if you just choose your words carefully. Thank you, because again, that one does. It seems like in a leadership role, impression management is the is a beautiful term. Yeah, I, I don't get to say and do whatever I want because it's authentic. Yeah, and and it's and it's difficult. I wrote a, I wrote a piece. I called it the dangerous art of impression management, and I meant danger because because uh, you know you can you can come across as inauthentic, and you don't want to do that. So you don't want to you know you want to sort of be yourself, but you want to do it in a kind of controlled way, in a socially skilled way. I like that. Thank you. I realize that was a side no, trip, but it seems well, like you've done a lot of work in that. Space. Yeah. Well, and let me let me segue because we had talked earlier about how do you sort of develop leaders, and so the model that I've used in the work that I did, I did work with Bernie Bass and, and uh, Bernie Bass and Bruce Abolio were very well known for transformational leadership, and I sort of adopted the transformational leadership model. And the one that, and it's basically transformational leadership has four components, what are called the four I's. And um, the first one is idealized influence. And idealized influence is how much does the leader look like a leader? It's an element of sort of charisma. Does the person look leader-like? But it's in an authentic way. In other words, okay. does the person follow through? Does the leader follow through on the promises he or she makes? Do they follow through in terms of saying, you know, I want you to stay late tonight and work really hard so we can achieve this goal. And what I say is that idealized influence and transformational leaders 
will roll up their sleeves and join in. In other words, they walk the talk. They don't just okay. say, let's do this and expect everybody else. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. you know, roll up their sleeves and get involved. So they're out front, you know. The sort of military example I use is, you know, the, the, the general, the field marshal can can stay on the hill overlooking the battlefield or like Alexander the Great could be in the front line and a transformational leader would look at it and say, well, from idealized influence, I need to be on the front line. Um, the second component is inspirational motivation. And inspirational motivation is that ability to inspire people, to motivate them. And you, but you do it not in a kind of a rah-rah sort of, you know, cheerleading way, but you do it in a, in a way that says, you know, that where you articulate a vision, you talk about a set of values, you tap into your followers' shared values, and get everything sort of aligned so that people want to follow you and they mm -hmm. want to be motivated to achieve the outcome. And those those two together, the idealized influence and inspirational motivation, are typically what we think about as charismatic leadership. So often we think of charismatic leadership as extroverted, and yet what I think I hear you saying is this can also be introverted. I may just have to manage it a little more yeah, and charismatic leaders can do it in different ways. So if you think about, you know, this sort of typical charismatic leader, let's take a Steve Ballmer, who is kind of well-known for sort of being over the top fusive, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Steve Ballmer from Microsoft, who just re uh, retired a while back. He's that kind of very effusive mm -hmm, charismatic mm -hmm. leader. But if you take somebody like Gandhi or Martin, okay. Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, you know, it's not a rah-rah type. I mean, and they're doing a different kind of thing. Rather than trying to get people motivated to forge ahead, they were trying to motivate people to peaceful resistance. So they're actually mm -hmm. working on different kinds of emotions, you know, to be strong, but to sort of stay stoic and silent, right? Mm -hmm. In the face of aggression or yeah. whatever, that's the whole yeah. idea of, you know, Gandhi uh, and, yeah. and uh, MLK Jr. in terms of uh, that sort of passive resistance, right? So different charismatic leaders demonstrated in different ways. I mean, that you know, there's not a recipe for all mm -hmm. charismatic mm -hmm. leaders. There, there are plenty of introverted charismatic mm -hmm. leaders. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was a famous introvert. Okay. So I'm assuming some of our listeners are saying, I want to be that. What do you do yeah, to, to get there? Well, so those two dimensions of transformational leadership, you sort of have to work on. You have to work on developing the skills, thinking about the role, learning to play the role of leader. Mm -hmm. You have to think about how are you going to inspire people, and again, it doesn't have to be you know overly emotional, but but the idea of uh, of articulating a compelling vision, focusing on the mission, you know, mm -hmm. mission driven leadership, and uh, and getting enthusiastic about that mission, and mm -hmm. and, um, and so you can do all those kinds of things, and that will get you the idealized influence and the inspirational motivation. Now, the other two elements of charismatic leadership. So those are the two that, that connect most to performance, getting people energized, right? The other two eyes, the other two elements are individualized consideration. And that really is the leader forming a dyadic, a strong dyadic relationship with each follower. And it's done by being empathetic, listening, and determining what motivates the follower, where the follower's uh, goals and values are. And using those to um, 
to get that follower, to coach that follower. Mm -hmm. So we think mm -hmm. of individualized consideration in kind of the coaching, mentoring kind of part of leadership. And delegating is critically important in that. Mm -hmm. And that's how you develop leaders. So transformational leaders typically lead groups that, and I'll quote the title of Bass's first book on this, lead them to performance beyond expectations. He called it leadership and performance mm -hmm. beyond expectations. Uh, so you get high levels of performance and you get high levels of commitment. But the other thing that happens through the individualized consideration and through the delegating process and allowing followers to, to take on leadership roles or partial leadership roles is you develop those followers into leaders. And so transformational leaders are well known for developing the, their direct reports in, mm -hmm. in, you know, into leadership roles themselves. And a, and a good transformational leader looks back and says, I did my job because those people who are following me and will mm -hmm. be in my leadership position as I move on and retire or, or leave, they will be able to do better things than I was able to do. And then I left out the last of the four eyes just to complete it, but that's intellectual stimulation. So there's ideas, are these leaders who are all chummy with their followers and don't, you know, don't prod them? Intellectual stimulation is really pushing your followers to think about things in different ways, to be creative, to take on challenges. And I'm not sure whether I, I know much enough about Steve Jobs to determine if he was transformational or not, but he definitely was high in intellectual stimulation because that's what he did. He challenged his employees to, to create new things, to think about, we're not just a computer company, think about how we're delivering information and what mm -hmm. is information. Mm -hmm. Well, wow, iPod, that's information is music, right? Information is our phones, right? So he was very good at the intellectual stimulation, getting people to think about problems and products in new ways. So back to transformational leader then, and they develop their followers. Mm -hmm. Are there things they do in common that a listener could say, that's one of the things I can do? Or are they all quite unique? Well, I mean, there's different ways of doing it. But no, there are, there are certain things that definitely you can do. And one is by delegating and challenging, having your subordinates, having your followers, giving them that kind of leeway and autonomy to, to take charge of things, right? Okay. Not, in other words, not micromanaging. Mm -hmm. and, and that's how they do it. I mean, that's how transformational leaders get things done. They get it done through the followers. I mean, okay. it's the followers doing the, doing mm -hmm. the work, mm -hmm. right? The heavy lifting. Sure, the leader's there. The leader's willing to roll up his or her sleeves and get involved. But it's really, you know, this is about you all, and this mm -hmm. is about the team and the group and getting things done, and we're gonna do this together. So they set the path, they've got the vision, and the associates are the followers. Yeah, and, and, and remember, the vision is usually shared. So one of the mm -hmm. things is, you know, a transformational leader is gonna say, is gonna, you know, approach followers and say, you know, I kind of know generally where we're going, mm -hmm. but when it mm -hmm. comes to the specifics, you all are gonna help me figure it out. We're gonna do this together because we wanna all be going in the same direction. So the the Collins level five leadership, that's one of the things that we think we see in those attributes is I set the end path yeah. and smart people figure out how to get figure there. Out how to get there. Yeah, in many ways it's it's very similar to transformational leadership. Okay. The, the sort of level five humility comes mm -hmm. from the fact that transformational leaders are trying to develop their followers and take pride in that. There was a guy that was uh, retired CEO years ago who I was 
invited to to meet and did some workshops in the same sessions. And his name was Brad Anderson, and he was the recently retired CEO of Best Buy. Oh. And just spending time with Brad, they gave him an award for transformational leadership. And, and spending time with him, I said, wow, they really picked the right guy. Because all he could talk about is he had just recently stepped down, was what a terrific job his uh, direct reports, the new leaders were going to do in the organization. And all he could talk about was um, how proud he was of the people in his organization. And he knew some of the lower level people and, hmm. and, and told me about the great things that some of the, the great innovative uh, ideas that some of these people came from. And when we had some downtime, he walked across the street to there was a Best Buy across the street from the hotel we were staying at. And he went and talked to the employees about it. I said, how'd you spend your break today? He said, well, I went over to Best Buy, no longer CEO. <laughs> I went over and I found out they're doing some innovative stuff over there that I'd never thought about. And he said, I, I really uh, thank them for being so innovative. Ah, oh, that sounds fascinating. Is there any downside to being a transformational leader? Well, one of the, the problems and issues that comes up a lot when we talk about transformational leadership, and even more so when we talk about charismatic leadership, because mm -hmm. they, are, they are linked theories, is what we call the dark side of uh, so for for every uh, positive transformational leader for every Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. We can think about charismatic leaders who are on the dark side. So obviously uh, Adolf Hitler comes to mind. We often in leadership studies mm -hmm. or in mm -hmm. teaching leadership we talk about the Hitler question. And so one of the problems and one of the issues that I think is very fundamental to determining the sort of good leader from the bad leader, charismatic, transformational, whatever, is this idea of we tend to think of good leadership and effective leadership as being the same thing. A leader can be effective, can accomplish goals, but not be good. Those, you know, and, and Hitler's uh, good a good as in example. morally good. Right. Okay. And so, mm -hmm. so we're really talking about the moral, the ethical nature of leadership. And, you know, and so being effective, when leaders are effective, there's a tendency to say, wow, you know, what a transformational leader, what a charismatic leader, because they were effective. But I think we really seriously need to think about that ethical dimension, the, the sort of good versus bad, not just effectiveness. And so what are some of the ways that we can distinguish good leaders from just merely effective leaders? Well, the classic thing they talk about in philosophy is that the ends do not justify the means. So in other words, the way in which you are effective has implications for ethics and for morality. So if you achieve your goals, but you exhaust and deplete your followers mm -hmm. in the process, or if you achieve your goals, your financial goals, your production goals, or whatever, mm -hmm. by destroying the environment, or mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. it is, then that's effective leadership, but that's not good leadership. Good leaders leave their followers better off when they exit their leadership position. So, and that's the part of transformational leadership that really is about developing followers, so that you develop their leadership capacity. If a leader is too self-focused, narcissistic, mm -hmm. or whatever, they're going to focus and say, you know, it's all about me, and the followers are the means to the end, and I don't really care much about what happens to those folks. And 
but a, a true transformational, an ethical transformational leader is going to really care about the followers and not feel like the job is done unless those followers have developed their leadership capacity if you haven't left them better mm-hmm. off than when you found them. I'm working with a group of oncologists, and one of the uh, gentlemen who's running a department talked about, now that I'm a better leader, quote, more effective, that means I can manipulate people better. And that feels bad to me. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he said, but that's what this feels like. And and so we've talked about what are you accomplishing? You're curing cancer in the lives of humans. And so if you're leading other people to help accomplish that, leading them in an ethical way, then how do you deal with the fact that you feel like you're making people do things? Yeah. Well, I think that that's the, that's the trick, and that's the alignment mm-hmm. of, of motivations and, and values and goals mm-hmm. is, is a transformational leader is going to you know, work with followers and say, help me decide how we're going to get this done, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, there's so the participative behavior in ter- mm-hmm. you know, allowing followers to have their say, to have their voice, to maybe ch- change directions. You know, another thing that I think is really important it, with, um, if we talk about these ethical leaders, ethical leaders mm-hmm. are open to being challenged by their followers. I mean, they, they have to be, they have to, you know, if they're going to stay on the right path. Mm-hmm. And so an ethical leader, mm-hmm. an ethical transformational leader will say to the followers, look, if, if I do something wrong or mm-hmm. if you think I'm going down the wrong mm-hmm. path, call me on it, you know, and, and, and honestly, let's figure out how to correct this because I don't always know what's right. And I don't mm-hmm. always know, you know, I may not always choose the right, the right path. So how about when they're managing up? Because they, many people are managing up as well as down. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, again, the, the, I'm thinking of a specific person who said feels manipulative. Is it in the best interest of the organization? Oh, it feels manipulative to manage, manage up. up. Yeah, I, I know my boss yeah. is a narcissist, and I wanna, I want us to I- advance the program yeah. and help our clients. Yeah. Well, that's a challenge. I mean, <laughs> but the reality yeah. for I mean, I mean, that's the challenge, and that's where I think you really have to, you know, where a leader has to be high on their on self awareness and say, mm-hmm. you know, how am I going to do this, and how am I going to do it in an authentic yeah. way, or an ethical um, way? Yeah, or in an ethical way, and you know, and I think at, at that point there are tough decisions that have to be made. But mm-hmm. if you're if your boss and you're in a leadership role is doing things that are eventually going to harm your followers, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you have an obligation to stand up to that person. Mm -hmm. So in the same way, if I just was the transformational leader and just told my followers, if I'm on the wrong path or I'm doing the wrong thing, tell me about Mm -hmm, it, right? mm -hmm. You have an obligation as the leader, Mm -hmm, as mm -hmm. now the follower in the follower role Mm -hmm. to stand up to that boss and say, you know, look, you're, you know, I don't agree with the way you're mm-hmm, doing things. Mm-hmm. I don't like my people being involved in, you know, going, Ex, you know, going yeah. down this path. And, and, and it takes courage. I mean, mm-hmm. you know. So one of, when I think about ethics and I think about character in leaders, and this is one of the things that was not really well developed in the transformational leadership theory, and, and Bertie Bass and I had some conversations about mm-hmm. this, is... You know, what does it mean to be a person, uh, you know, a good person, to be a person of, of character? And, and mm-hmm. in some of the work I've done, we just sort of, I worked with some philosophers and we we mm-hmm. use sort of Aristotle's model of cardinal virtues. And one of those is courage. 
and if and courage is the courage of your convictions mm-hmm. and also the courage to stand up and so in that situation that leader needs courage to deal with the supervisor above mm-hmm. some of the other virtues that are important so courage is fortitude fortitude or courage you know another one is temperance is regulation of your emotions, regulation mm-hmm. of your passions, right? And that's where greed and those kinds of things can come into play and really destroy the the ethical nature or the good nature of the leader. And so you want to be, you know, be moderate and and control your passions. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many political leaders and and business leaders have gotten in trouble because they weren't able to control their and passions spiritual and, leaders. and harass, you know, sexual harassment or those kind of things? So. You know, that, that's the um, second cardinal virtue. The third one is prudence, and prudence is wisdom. But how do we get wisdom? Well, we get wisdom by being open to other people's ideas. And that's mm-hmm. inherent in that asking your followers, hey, help me out with this. Help me understand what, you know where we're going or how we can solve this problem mm-hmm. or whatever. So, um, and then finally, justice, being, being fair. And so I think if you sort of want to distinguish the good leaders from the poor leaders, good leaders are courageous, they're prudent, right? Mm-hmm. They, they consider both sides. They don't just say, I'm going to forge ahead because I know what's right. They are able to regulate their passions. They have temperance and they're fair. They're just. And in other words, what does that mean? It means giving credit where credit is due. Mm-hmm. Not saying I did this, saying mm-hmm. we did this. Mm-hmm. And, and that's critically important. So as a leader, again, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, some of our listeners kind of running through that list as I am and saying, okay, am I, am I just, am I fair, am I prudent? And it sounds like open to feedback is yeah. oh, sure. foundational. And, and that's one of the things that is really difficult because the way we assess mm-hmm. the ethicality, the goodness of a mm-hmm. leader is we ask followers or we ask other people mm-hmm. to rate mm-hmm. that person. There's an inherent problem with that, and I, I spoke with, uh, was on a panel with Joanne Chula, who does this for a living, just focuses mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. leadership ethics, and I said, you know, we have a problem because here's the problem. If the followers like the leader, they view the leader as ethical, uh, or the leader is ethical or not. Yeah. In other words, they're sort of blinded by their own feelings. If they're nice, that's mistaken. Yeah. For yeah. I, I, in fact, I even say, I call it the, the this shows my age, but I call it the white hat black hat phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So you remember the old Western movies? You always knew the bad guy because he's wearing the black hat, and the good guy's mm-hmm. wearing the white hat. And what happens, I think, is something similar with the followers. The followers say, "Hey, we accomplished a lot." My leader is, you know, really driven and he's pretty nice to me. And so I give him a white hat. So when I'm asked, Mm -hmm. is he ethical? Would he ever lie, cheat or steal? I say, oh, no, of course not. You know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And it's just a sort of a surface kind of halo effect, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If my leader's treated me badly and I'm asked to rate Mm -hmm. that person, Mm -hmm. no, he's, he's a liar. He's a scoundrel, you know, that kind of thing. And so you either give him a white hat or a black hat, but you don't make the fine distinctions. And I'm thinking again back to one of these people I'm coaching who's not warm. And one of the reasons she was getting a coach is because people attributed all of these negative qualities to her. She actually cares deeply. She just doesn't show it with warmth. But the black hat isn't accurate. Yeah, yeah. 
but it's based on how people feel, and that's the problem. So what we're trying to do, what we're really trying to do is come up with some other ways of measuring good versus bad leadership that don't involve having other people rate them because whenever you have other people rate them, you have all kinds of personal mm -hmm. biases that come into play. So we're really trying to, uh, to focus on what are some other methods that we can use, some more evidence-based methods. So in mm -hmm. other words, you know, we can look for things, we can look for ethical violations and we can give them a score on their ethical mm -hmm. violations or mm -hmm. something like that. But this is work that we're still in the process of planning and doing. It's really very, very hard to measure uh, the goodness of a leader. I'm thinking of a 360 I use and it does ask things like courage but I, I think, again, back to your point, if I like people, I rate them high yeah. on most unless I've seen them kick puppies in the street or something. Right, exactly. And if I dislike them, I rate them lower, yeah. even though I may not have ever had evidence that they've done these things that I just feel like they're not good. Yeah. And so I think the real way to, to you know, the, the sort of key to measuring that is to put people in situations where there's going to be an ethical challenge and see how they respond mm. to it. And know. this is like the prisoner thing where we, or the... Prisoner dilemma thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it does tell you a lot, but it, but it is hard. To, it is hard to distinguish that. Often we can't identify the bad leaders until they've done something horrible. Now, there are selection, you know, people in selection, Robert Hogan, mm -hmm. people like that who argue that, well, let's measure these from a personality dimension. Let's get out the extreme narcissists and the extreme manipulative Machiavellians. Mm -hmm. Let's, mm -hmm. let, we can measure those things and we can, you know, get, not let them get mm -hmm. into leadership mm -hmm. positions. But that's really a selection thing that has to start early. Well, and the fact that, that this young man is asking about manipulating yeah. tells me he's probably not the problem yeah <laughs> the one who's not asking about it yeah and unaware even that's that's one of the problems right people aren't aware now you know it's interesting you mentioned the woman though but because the you know women have a a, a tougher bar you know they i mean they have a tougher bar because they're expected to be warm but they're mm -hmm. also expected to be agentic i mean you know it's tough for a woman to be too task oriented task-oriented agentic males sort of get a pass right yeah they sort of yeah. they, you know well yeah, he gets things done, but he's not particularly warm. Woman leader often has to do both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's that's another topic. That's another topic, right? right. Ron, thank you so okay. much. What a delight to have this conversation with yeah. you. Well, this has been terrific, so thank you so much. What book would people read of yours or books? Yeah. Well, if they were really interested in transformational leadership, I did do the book with Bernie Bass, which is called Transformational <laughs> Leadership Second Edition. But I think the best way to connect with me is I do a blog for Psychology Today called Cutting Edge Leadership. And so that's readily accessible. You don't have to pay for it. You just have to click on Psychology Today, either search on my name or uh, look up Cutting Edge Leadership. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. <laughs>